Um, I'm going to be uh, sharing from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, so if, if you'd like to head there with me. Um, you know, Philippians, for me, has always been one of those challenging books, Challenge, challenging in a good way. Um, Paul really kind of dishes out, dishes out some serious challenges, um, commands, in, in the book of Philippians. And, you know, um, when Sean was texting with me yesterday about uh, bringing Caleb up with Caleb being here and kind of in that, that preparation to deploy phase, you know, my thoughts drifted back to my uh, deployments in those last few days before you're deploying and the, all the things that are going through your mind, the anxiety, kind of the stress, um, sometimes a bit of excitement and um, you know, I'm, I've been training for this. I'm ready to go do this. But, but definitely some anxiety, and your mind will kind of wander into those thoughts of the what-ifs, right? And that's really kind of fitting because Paul is going to address a lot of that here in Chapter 4. Well, he addresses it throughout the book of Philippians, but, um, you know, Paul here is going to talk about anxiety, um, tying in with the military theme, unity and the importance of unity, you know, he's going to challenge us that we're to stand firm in the Lord, and he gives us some key ingredients as we go through Philippians 4 here. You know, uh, unity, what to do with our anxious thoughts, right? How to think when we get anxious. And so it was really kind of fitting as, as uh, I was thinking about that this morning, about bringing Caleb up here. So you're my prop this morning, Caleb. <laughs> um, so before we dig into uh, Philippians 4, let's uh, open up with prayer. So dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, just for, what, uh, for this honor just to be able to gather here at your feet, Lord, and, and to read from your word. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that um, all the stressors, all the anxieties, all the worries, um, all the things that we walk in these doors with, Lord, I pray that you would just give us your peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord, that you would find our minds and our hearts for fertile ground for your word to take root. Lord, I just pray above all else that you would be glorified as we gather this morning. Amen. So a little kind of backstory on the book of uh, Philippians. So the city of Philippi was, was kind of a major city in Macedonia at the time. And we, we read about Paul's first encounter um, in Philippi back in uh, Acts chapter 16. And essentially, uh, to make a long story short, Paul and Silas wound up getting stripped, severely beaten with rods, and then thrown into prison. So great first experience that Paul had in Philippi. Um, but that wasn't the only place he had those kind of experiences. Paul was that kind of guy. Um, <laughs> um, but what, what we find, where we find Paul kind of in, in, towards the end of um, Acts 16 is despite being stripped, beaten with rods, and you know, I, I imagine they're probably pretty well swollen and bleeding at this point. Where do, we, where do we find Paul and Silas at midnight in prison praising God, right? And I, I thought that was really important to call out because we're going to see Paul challenging us with some things here, and keep that in mind. Keep, keep in mind what these uh, people Philippi saw of Paul in their first encounter with him, that despite the beatings, Despite being in prison, he was still worshiping and praising God. Um, <clears throat> well, what happens is there's this great earthquake, right? So the chains 
break free, the door to the prison opens, and there's a guard who's been charged with making sure that these guys stay there. Um, well, the guard freaks out because he sees the doors open, he sees the chains off, and he's about to kill himself. And Paul yells out, hey, wait, we're still here. And this really amazes the guard. I, I can imagine that. Like, these guys have been beaten. Like, we might be killing these guys, yet they still stayed here, right? And so the guard asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. And so in response, Paul and Silas told him that to be saved, he must believe in the Lord Jesus. And what happens? His whole family gets baptized that night. So it got me into thinking that as this letter from Paul to the church um, in Philippi was read, was maybe that jailer and his family were there in the congregation as this letter is being read. Um, the book Philippians uh, is often referred to as the book of joy, and you see a lot of that throughout Philippians from Paul, his joy. And the joy that Paul is talking about in Philippians is not what we would kind of consider earthly happiness, right? It's, it's that, that Christian, that, that, um, that, that joy that only a true believer gets from the comfort that God provides. It's non-circumstantial. It's no matter what's going on around you, like Paul, he's beaten, bruised, bloody, and he's worshiping at midnight in prison. I also personally kind of look at Philippians on the book of right thinking. Paul talks a lot about how we are to think rightly um, throughout Philippians, and we're going to see that especially here in chapter 4. But kind of going back to that joy theme, so I was, I was like, how do you define joy? And so the best and most common, I shouldn't say the best, the most common one that I, I found amongst um, the commentators, um, and Google helped me out a lot, was um, Christian joy is defined as a lasting state of being that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. And then uh, I'm a big Martin Lloyd-Jones fan, and so Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote <clears throat> that true Christian joy is the response and reaction of the soul to a knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the joy that Paul is going to talk about here in Philippians. And, and you, you'll learn really quickly, and we're going to see it even here in chapter 4, but Paul wants people to understand, you know, uh, Christian joy is not based upon circumstances. As fact, in fact, as Paul is writing Philippians, where is he? He's under arrest in Rome, right? And he's shackled to a Roman guard 24-7. I kind of feel bad for any guard that's shackled to Paul for 24-7. I think he had the worse end of the deal. Actually, the better end of the deal because uh, Paul writes about um, all the coming to faith that happens while he's um, under arrest in Rome. Um, Paul's going to talk, hit on some specific themes that I want to highlight here in chapter 4. The need to stand firm. And then he's going to give us some ingredients on how to stand firm. He's going to talk about unity, rejoicing what to do when we get worried and anxious, and then he's going to talk about the right thinking, what we can do with that worry and anxiety when we experience it, and how we can take it to the Lord, and then how we can change our thinking, our approach to it. So kind of on the, on the topic of worry, you know, I knew this guy once, super stressed out all the time, um, always worried about everything. Um, he would worry about worrying. It was, it was pretty, pretty crazy. And so one day he tells me, he goes, you know what? I would pay a $5,000 a month to have somebody else worry for me. 
And so I looked at him, he wasn't a very wealthy guy. He's like, how are you going to pay somebody, how are you going to come up with this $5,000 every month? He goes, well, that would be his worry, right? (laughs) This this same guy got really upset with me not too long ago because he was working under a car and the jack stand fell out and it crushed the whole left side of his body. He's like, man, you weren't even worried about me. I figured you'd be all right. That one's not as good, but... (laughs) All right, so all that aside, I promise you, I think that's my last uh, corny joke. Um, But let's get into Philippians 4 here. Um, Let's start with verse 1. And so uh, verse 1, and I'm reading from the ESV, so if you're reading from King James or a different uh, translation, we'll be a little bit different, but I'm going to talk to that as we go along. So verse 1, Philippians 4, it says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Um, Paul's joy here is in his fellow believers. And you just really see that pastoral heart that Paul has for uh, the church in Philippi. You know, he talks about his love. He longs for them, my joy and crown. That, that word crown that he uses there in the Greek is the same term for a, a crown that you would get, a, a wreath, when you would win an Olympic event back in, in the uh, ancient Olympic times. And so that's what he's talking about for these people and he's telling them, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so this stand firm comes from the Greek uh, verb, which is stekety. And it's an imperative, it's a command. So he's commanding them, stand firm. And it's a military term, which means stand your ground or stand your post in the midst of battle. It's to hold your position while under t- attack. It's, it's talking about soldiers who are refusing to abandon their posts regardless of the circumstances. So that's what Paul is telling the church in Philippi to to stand firm. Paul uses this same word earlier in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is saying, stand firm in the Lord. Was there anyone that you can think of who's walked this earth who stood more firmly than Jesus? You know, Paul's not telling them, stand firm in your own power. He's not telling them, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You're not doing this in your own flesh. You're standing firm in the Lord. And I want to look at one other word that's here in this first verse. And so if you're in King James, the word is so. Uh, King James says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And the ESV, which I just read from, that was thus, stand firm thus. And so the word that's used here is, is hutos, which is fun to say, um, but in the, in the Greek here, it's more commonly translated in this way. And so what Paul is saying, stand firm in this way in the Lord. All right. And so what Paul's going to do here as he goes through uh, chapter 4 is he's saying, stand firm 
in this way in the Lord, and then he's going to go through chapter 4 and kind of give us those key, key ingredients on how we can do that. Verse 2, moving on to verse 2. And I'll read uh, verse 2 and verse 3 here. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So that's got to feel a little bit Odd, I would imagine that you're sitting, you know, I mean, imagine we're sitting here in church and Harley gets a letter from, I don't know, Greg Laurie or somebody, pick your favorite big-time well-known preacher, and he's reading along, you get to the end of the letter, because we're in the fourth chapter, and all of a sudden, whoever this is says, hey, you and you, get along, right? Um, so I mentioned that Paul throughout Philippians is talking about unity, um, and I just want to call out a couple of times. So going back in chapter 1 in verse 9, he prayed that their love might abound more and more and that they would stand firm in one spirit with one mind. In chapter 2, verse 2, he urges them to be of the same mind and love. In chapter 3, verse 20, he reminded them of their shared citizenship in heaven. And now here in chapter 4, he gets right to the point about a problem in, in the church. He wants to address an agreement, a conflict, some sort of division that's going on in the church. It's got to be uh, significant in some way for Paul to call it out, and to not just call it out, but to call out two people by name. Um, you know, somebody once said that a snowflake is a pretty frail thing, right? You can blow it around, you can easily melt it. But if enough snowflakes get together, they can stop the, the most powerful vehicle, right? I mean, we've seen that. I mean, Buffalo had a crazy blizzard back before Christmas. Um, it also kind of drew to mind Ecclesiastes 4.12, or yeah, 4.12, and it says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It got me thinking, when, when God's people are united and stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, with one mind and with one love, it's a powerful thing, isn't it? But Paul here is, he's entreating these two uh, women, and entreating is, is earnestly pleading. I'm pleading with you, please. Um, two members of this church here. He's asking them to put their, their disagreement, whatever it is, under the authority of the Lord. He's asking them to come to an agreement in the Lord. And I think sometimes we could all use that reminder, can't we? You know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons we might might disagree, and, and sometimes there's things that we should disagree about. What's the, the saying? Um, you know, unity in, in the, the majors, you know, grace in, in the minors. Um, if, if we're seeing God's word violated, um, that's something we should definitely take a stand on and, and come in, be in disagreement about, right? Um, when the gospel is truly at stake, um, but Paul's not really talking about that here because one thing we know about Paul from his letters, if there's some sort of um, theological problem going on, um, he addresses it pretty clearly, right? He calls out specifically, here's what's wrong. He lays the scripture on the table, proverbially, and, and calls it out. So we really don't, I think, get the sense that that's what's going on here because Paul doesn't call that out. He just calls out that these two women aren't getting along. 
Um, and, and I think part of the reason Paul does this is because there's a real danger. Um, you know, it's possible to disagree on something but still remain close, right? I disagree with a lot of you that the Bills are not the best football team, <laughs> but I still get along with you, right? <laughs> um, but the real danger is when we're, and, and we can disagree about that immensely, right? Um, but the real danger is when we bring that same level of intensity that should be reserved for the right kind of battles and we bring that into the wrong kind of battles. The things that aren't of eternal consequence. You know, in the most recent Fight Club chapter that we did, uh, our theme is what are you fighting for? And so I asked the guys that were there at the kickoff rally, you know, I was like, what are you fighting for? Are you even in the fight? And then I think the last question I asked was, are you in the right fight? And, and I gave the example of a friend of mine uh, who works down on the border. He's got a little mission, and he shares the gospel and water and food with some of these illegal immigrants that are uh, coming across the border. And, man, if, I wish you could have known this guy. Like I served with him like 10 years ago. This is not the kind of guy that you would. His nickname is Diesel for a reason, big old biker-looking guy. And, uh, and his heart is just breaking for some of the things he's hearing as these families are coming across, across the border. Um, so Paul's asking these two women, take your disagreement, bring it under the authority of God. He calls them out by name. And then uh, he asks his, uh, the word is true companion, but it, it uh, translates into a true yoke fellow. And that would be someone who's carrying an equal workload. So we assume that he's talking. We don't know for sure. He doesn't give a name. But we assume he's probably talking to somebody who's in a leadership position within the church. Um, some of the commentaries I read says he's talking to the whole body. Some say he's because of the, the yoke fellow. It's probably somebody else who's in a leader, leadership type position. But either way, I think whether he's talking to a specific person or the whole congregation, his intent is the same, is you guys are being divided. There's a conflict going on in the body, and you guys need to take care of this. And Paul does this because, once again, he knows that one of the greatest dangers, one of the things that can most easily tear, tear apart a church body is conflict, right? Sometimes we get so worried about the things outside of these walls as being dangerous, but, man, how many churches have we seen that have fallen from within, Right? from conflicts from within. So Paul gets direct. He gets right to the point here. He calls out these two women, and he asks that he be, they be helped in overcoming this um, conflict that's going on. You know, as I was thinking through this, um, first thing that came to mind was John thirteen thirty four, and it's Jesus. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so going even further into verse 34, Jesus states, by this, by that love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then love is defined really well, I think, for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 uh, 4 through 7. It says, love is patient, love is kind, It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you, but as I think about all those things that are just listed off here, it's really challenging, isn't it? And I think even more so in the day that we're living in it, I don't know about you, but, um, and I know I'm not the oldest in the room, but I think we are very divisive as a society right now, globally. I mean, just look at Facebook or Twitter and just look at the way, I know some of them kind of get that keyboard courage, right? I'm not face-to-face with this person, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, both guns on them, but we're just so divided right now. And this, I think, should be a challenge to us, this love, because um, I thought about this, like, what if, what if we were to sift our disagreements and our conflicts through 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? Are we loving each other as Jesus loved us? Are we demonstrating this kind of love here in this building? But more importantly, is that what the outside world is seeing here? Are we separated? Are we set apart from that? Are they seeing this unique love within this church that's different than what they're seeing everywhere else in the world? What's going to bring them in here, right? If we're the same way they are, the same way they see out there, what's going to draw them in here? Why go somewhere that's the same, right? And I think so many people are looking for love right now. They're looking for it in the wrong places, right? So Paul is saying if we're going to stand firm in the Lord, he's given us a very important first ingredient here, unity, right? Going on to verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, really, Paul? Always, right? I was like, are you serious? Well, he's pretty serious because he says it again, right? And it's almost like he put it there twice, knowing that we're going to say, really, Paul? Always rejoice in the Lord? But he doesn't give us any wiggle room here. This, this, this word is in the imperative form, so he's given us a command. We're be, being commanded to rejoice always. And Paul is not just throwing it out there. I mentioned Acts 16 in the beginning because he was no hypocrite here. What did the church in Philippi say of, see of him in the very first time that they met him, right? He was rejoicing always. He's beaten, bloodied, locked, locked in a prison, and yet he's having a worship service at midnight. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's things going on in my life, things going on in society, things going on around the world, where I just don't feel like rejoicing so I go back to Paul and say, really, Paul, you're going to give us that kind of a command? Always? So I'm like, Paul, you can't do that. You don't understand what I'm going through. Well, he can, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because what Paul is saying here is he's not just saying rejoice. He's saying rejoice in the Lord always. Just like in uh, 127 where, he, where he's talking about unity, right? Uh, They are to be agreeing in the Lord always. Uh, Here we are told to rejoice in the Lord always. And so there's a big difference between earthly happiness and and the kind of joy um, that Paul is talking about here. This this word rejoice is uh, translated to mean celebrate, right? 
Well, it's kind of easy to do that when things are going well. Your, your health is good, um, your relationships are good, work is going good, um, 401k is doing good, you'll be able to retire someday, you got a vacation coming up that you, you're really looking forward to. And like, I see so many people who are in that good uh, situation and, and they're rejoicing in the Lord, you know, God is so good for me, God is so good to me, he's blessed me so much. But then I might see them a week later and they're Eeyore, right? Because something's going, going wrong. You know, what happens when the doctor report isn't so good? What happens when you're losing your job? What happens when eggs are $100 a carton and you can barely afford gas to get to work and back? You know, and so Paul isn't saying rejoice in the job loss, rejoice in the sickness. No, what Paul is saying is despite our changing circumstances... Remember, if, if we're purely circumstantial in our joy, in our happiness, well, circumstances change, right? We're in this roller coaster of life. Um, things can be going good for you really well, and you get a phone call an hour from now, and that can change everything on, on a heartbeat, or in a heartbeat. So Paul is saying, despite your changing cir- circumstances, despite your challenges, you can and we must find our joy in an unchanging God. And I think that's it. That's the key here. If I believe in God, and I know who he is, and I know his promises for me, and where my eternity is, no matter what's going on, I have that at a minimum that I can rejoice in. My joy and my rejoicing needs to be grounded in just that, who God is what his son did for me some 2,000 years ago. And what that means for me, what that means for you, not just in the here and now, it's so easy to get so focused on the here and now, you need that eternal perspective. This is a continual, habitual joy. Uh, the, the verb that Paul uses here is it's, it's a continuous, continuing state, a present state, always being rejoicing. You see, um, we can have a confidence in what the end is because we get the end right here, right? If nothing else, you you can know that we have an end and what our promises are from here, no matter what's going on around us. And it starts with a, what I think is a foundational thing is knowing that God is in control always. He is in control of every circumstance He controls it all for my good and for your good, according to his purpose. That's the catch that sometimes we forget about and why circumstances can can get us down. In Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So there's a qualifier for those that love God. And all things, yes, all things, but the key is according to his purpose. And that's the problem is you see some of these prosperity gospel preachers out there who are saying, hey, if you're saved, everything's good. You're always going to be doing well. Send me some money and you're going to be doing even more well. <laughs> um, but that's, that's not what, what we're getting here is it's going to work good 
in God's good purpose. We aren't always going to see what that is. Very rarely are we going to see what that is while we're in it, right? But there comes that eternal perspective and that trust and my trusting in him that he does have my best interest. And we kind of get an idea of what that, what God's purpose in all things for us. And it's in verse 29, Romans 8, 29. It says, to be conformed to the image of his son. He's working all things for our good to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is God's purpose in all things? To conform us to the image of his son. And when you come to that understanding and that becomes your foundation, it gives you a whole different view of what's going on. You're not always going to understand it. But if you trust that he is working all things to his good purpose in it, it gives you a whole different perspective. And so one thing that I find a great comfort in in, in challenges is that I know he's doing a work through it. I often want to get out of those difficult situations. And how many times is that our prayers? Lord, take, take me out of this situation, right? I can't do this unless they change, right? I can't do this unless my boss changes. I just can't be happy unless so, whoever changes, your spouse, whatever the case may be. And so in those moments, and I catch myself kind of going down those, those thought rabbit holes, I remember this. I am his child. I remember what Jesus did for me some 2,000 years ago. And my favorite part is I know that right now, while I am in this circumstance, he is there, he says, and he's preparing a place for me. And he's preparing a place for you that where he is, I may come and that you may come. That's something that I can rejoice in. How about you? I wanted to talk a little bit here about um, in cognitive, so thought-based um, counseling. They always, there's different ways that this is phrased. My favorite way that I was taught it was circumstance plus perspective equals experience. C plus P equals E. And what that means is we're all going to have circumstances but what our perspective is, what our thoughts are on that, is going to drive what our experience is, right? Two, two people can go through the same situation. One can come out with joy. One can be in prison praising, worshiping God, and another one might just have his hand down in his head, right? And the perspective that you gain as a Christian through this allows you to be like Paul, praising and worshiping in prison at midnight while you're broken and bleeding. One of my favorite um, verses for myself, because sometimes it's hard to do this when you're just feeling weak, right? You're feeling beat down, you're feeling overwhelmed. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, um, you know, Paul is pleading with the Lord, three times he pleads with him to remove this thorn in his flesh. But the Lord responds to Paul this way. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul writes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And how does he finish it? For when I am weak, then I am strong. In those circumstances, those are kind of, if you think about it, the potter's wheel 
of life. Remember, God is working in all things for our good according to his purpose. I picture in my mind we're on this, this potter wheel, right? Actually, I, I was sharing with somebody not too long ago, um, when I was in Poland the last time, we walked through the street market, and here's this guy, and I just got mesmerized by it. He was taking these little block of wood, just a little square, one-by-one one blocks of wood, and he's just going to town on it with these different knives and blades. And I was amazed at the speed at which he was doing, but at the end of it, he'd come out with some cool little uh, animal or, or whatever the case may be. And the friends I was with, the, the other service members, were like, come on, we got to get going. I was like, look at what this guy's doing, you know. And um, I think about that in our own lives, like the circumstances we've gone through, it's, it's through those tough circumstances, those abrasive circumstances, where sometimes you need some sanding, sometimes you need some gouging. You've got to take something out of your hands that you're holding on to instead of holding on to him. Ultimately, my thought is that in this circumstance, at the end of it, I want to be relying less on me and relying more on him. And this is a tough pill to swallow. It is for me, is we don't need our circumstances to change. We need our perspectives to change. But I've got some great news for everybody this morning, is nobody here is king of the universe. Nobody's in charge. I know that disappoints you, Sean. <laughs> But maybe for some of you, that's a relief, right? You've heard the term carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. But remember what I said earlier, the comfort you get when you know that God is in control. So if we're to stand firm in the Lord, Paul gives us another key ingredient here, rejoicing in the Lord always. Perspective. What is your perspective? Uh, For time's sake, I'm going to go through verse 5 through 9 here. So it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And that was verse 5 through 9. This reasonableness, he starts off with, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Here, it's talking about having a moderate temperament. I talked a little bit before about kind of the people that you meet that are that Eeyore, right? Um, Then you also meet people who are very abrasive. When they're in a bad circumstance, man, they let you know about it, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to feel it, right? So Paul is telling us we need to have this moderate temperament. It's a gentleness towards others. It's not dragging others down. Uh, Another translation of it is being content with less than what you feel that you deserve, right? And he adds to that, the Lord is at hand. There's one thing I love the most about reading through the first century church is this, um, this eager expectation that you have. It's throughout the New Testament, this eager expectation that you have that the Lord's return is imminent, any minute now. And I got to think, I was like, how different would we be if we lived our lives in that eager expectation every hour, every minute? 
How differently would we treat each other? What would our priorities be? How would they change, right? I think sometimes we lose sight of that eminence and we let the things of our world kind of get, you know, in the military we talk about the five meter targets, the 10 meter targets, you know, you gotta hit what's the biggest threat. Sometimes all the things in this world become those little one and five meter targets and you lose sight that Christ is coming and he's coming soon. And we lose that mindset, we lose that perspective. But what if we brought that back? What if we focused on that and dwelt that? You woke up every morning saying, today might be the day, right? Verse 6, he talks about don't be anxious for anything. And here he goes again, Paul. He said, rejoice always. Now, don't be anxious for anything. Once again, this is that imperative form. He's given us a command, don't be anxious about anything. He's given us no wiggle room here as well. And so it's, it's easy to kind of misinterpret this in a way. Um, the, the way. The way he's saying this, don't be anxious here, it's this active tense, which is an ongoing state of controlling anxiety. You know, you can't prevent anxious thoughts from coming into your head. Um, I heard somebody say once, um, anxious thoughts are like birds, right? You can't control it if they want to try and land on your head, but you can control if they're going to build a nest in your hair, right? And so think about that. That's what Paul is saying here is, you know, things are going to get you anxious. Things are going to get you worried, but what are you going to do with that worry? Are you going to sit there and dwell on it? Are you going to let that bird hang around long enough that, that it can build a nest in your hair? Um, somebody else, uh, and I was trying to remember who, who it was. It might have been Greg Lurie. Somebody I was listening to on the radio, and... Um, he was saying that the presence of fret and worry is unavoidable, but the prison of fret and worry is optional. It goes back to that same mindset there of letting the bird kind of hang out and build its nest in your hair. And so I want to switch focus to the second half of verse 6 here. It begins with but. Thank goodness for the buts of the Bible. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so that but here, to call that out, that's kind of the fulcrum of this statement. That's the swing. That's the pivot, the gate here. So he's saying, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he's saying here, here's kind of that antidote, that weapon against anxious thoughts. Take them to God. Uh, somebody else, and I'm always trying to remember who I hear these, say these great things. Um, I heard somebody else say that, uh, that fear, anxiety, and worry can lead either to prayer or despair. And how true is that? You know, a great source of anxiety oftentimes is uncertainty. How, are, how is this going to turn out? You go and get a blood test. How's that going to turn out? Um, you know, when your kid first starts driving and they take off for the first time on their own, how's that going to turn out? <laughs> you know? What Paul is saying here is when you feel uncertain, don't dwell on it. Don't let your thoughts run, to, run wild on you. Um, don't let it consume you. Bring it to God in prayer and leave it there. 
who takes their vehicle to the mechanic, because it's making that weird sound, it's got you anxious, you take it to the mechanic, and you walk back there with them, and what are you doing there, huh? You sure you don't want to check over there, right? Do we, do we kind of do that to God sometimes? We take it to him in prayer, but it's still our problem, and we walk away with it, and we're still dwelling on it, we're still worrying about it. You know, Satan loves to attack us in our thoughts and in our minds. And step by step, you know, he's, uh, he's the father of all lies, Jesus tells us in John 8. He likes to fill our heads with these little lies. The problem is, is sometimes we start to believe them and they turn into these strongholds. Um, for the last Fight Club, we read um, Tony Evans' Kingdom and Rising, and he did a great chapter um, if your husbands went through Fight Club, get the book. I think it's chapter six, but there's a really good chapter on strongholds. And then what happens is we kind of identify in those thought processes, and that shapes how we respond to things, right? Um, we kind of identify as our anxiety and our fear and our despair and our depression. And then, based upon that, how many times in those moments do we try and respond and react on our own power, right? We try to somehow exert some control over things that often aren't in your control. I have no control over how the doctor's report is going to come back. But Paul is saying here, the antidote that our weapon against anxious thoughts is prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, right? That's the, the crux there. Because how many times do we feel thankful in those moments. Not very often, right? You know, Ephesians uh, 6, 10 through 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Our weapons against this is not of the flesh, but we try and fight it in the flesh all the time. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I like how Tony Evans' uh, words, he says, in prayer and petition to God, we're drawing power from the spiritual realm into the physical realm. But he also talked um, about being specific in our prayer. Sometimes it's not time for just a general, God, please help. Get specific. Um, my job in the military was calling an airstrike. Sometimes you need to get precise in your prayers. Kind of going back to the topic of our um, thinking quickly, when those negative thoughts come along, just as with sometimes we need to get specific in our prayer, sometimes we need to get really specific with our thinking as well. You need to battle those lies that Satan likes to plant in your mind, those strongholds, but you need to get precise. Find a specific truth, a specific verse, or maybe two. Um, in the military, if we know there's 10 bad guys in this town, we aren't going to attack it with 10. We want to attack it with double or triple the same amount of manpower. 
find some scriptural resources that you can use as a weapon to battle those, those negative thoughts that come into your mind. So as you bring the truth, which is the word, into your circumstance through prayer, battling the lies with the truth, with the scripture, and then another key thing is drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit into that battle. And as Sean talked about a few weeks ago, remember the, the spirit is like that dynamite kind of power. Imagine the kind of strongholds you can destroy if you bring that kind of power against them. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, take every thought captive. The translation of that phrase, to take captive, is actually an attack term. It means to attack with a sword or a spear. In Ephesians 6, we read about the armor of God. And what do we see? That the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you need to attack those lies, and you attack it with this sword that we're given here. Verse 7 talks about this peace of God which surpasses all understanding. This, you know, going back to the, the worldly joy versus the godly joy. Same thing here. This isn't the worldly peace that is circumstantial. I'm okay right now because things are going good. And then you've got different philosophies out there that say if you rid your mind of any desire or whatever the case may be, then you can never be disappointed here. Um, John 14, uh, 27 Um, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this isn't circumstantial peace. It's not worldly peace. It's the peace that comes from God. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this when things are going crazy and you turn to God and you turn it over to him. Like, it's just amazing if if you've ever felt that. I shouldn't be feeling this way, but I've just got this, this peace. And I'm sure there's been people who've been through things, and you go to console them, and they're like, I'm good. God's given me a peace about this, you know. And so uh, for time, I've got to close up, I guess, with verse 8 here. Um, so verse 8, Paul's talking, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about those things. So remember, I was talking about if we kind of sifted our um, interactions with each other through the definition that we get of love, what if we sifted our thoughts through this filter right here? Paul lists out eight things right here, right, in, uh, in verse 8. Is it true? Is it honorable? Are we sifting our thoughts through these things? And so that's what I would encourage you to do is when those negative thoughts come in, sift them them through this list here. What's left at the other end, right? You know, uh, real quick, I just wanted to close um, with this this, um, thought here of neuroplasticity. We always, you've heard the term, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Um, So there's there's been this general thought um, that kind of once, once your mind is developed it can't change but under new types of imaging they're seeing that our minds can change and you can do it through changing your thinking and it's it's really neat so that's what kind of paul is encouraging us to do we talk about the renewing of the mind everybody you know says science disproves god blah blah blah. here from the scripture it's talking about the renewing of the mind and science actually shows that your mind can be renewed if we change our thinking 
So sift your thoughts through this list of eight things that Paul gives us here. Another key ingredient that he's given us to uh, standing firm. And then real quick in, in verse 9, um, he's, he's saying again, you know, hey, I've set the example for you, right? Not just am I saying, but you've seen me do it, right? So I wanted to kind of close here with um, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. That's just as an encouragement. I take encouragement from this verse or this uh, three verses here. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an internal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, Lord, we just thank you for this time that you gave us this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word and, we, and, the, and that we can rely on it as a firm foundation as the truth. And as worry and anxiety creep in, Lord, that we can attack it with the weapon that you gave us, which is your word. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, for everybody here today, whatever is going on in their life, whatever the circumstance, Lord, that they would bring it to you and that your peace, which surpasses all understanding, would find them. Amen.